0: Uh, From all over the globe as you look around, Uh, we're glad that you are here this morning and have chosen to join with us. Uh, We're continuing our series as we are walking through the book of Acts. We find ourselves this week in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, Acts is in the New Testament. Do not have a Bible of your own, as John Baker alluded to. There should be uh, one that is around you, either under your seat or in the seat in front of you, uh, brown paperback or um, burgundy. And if you have, if you use that Bible, it will be on page six hundred and thirty-one, six hundred and thirty-one. Before we uh, get into uh, this particular set of scriptures that we find ourselves in the book of Acts. I want to back us up to a place in the Gospels, in the book of Mark. Something happened that was pretty significant and extraordinary. Uh, Jesus, along with three other apostles, goes up to a mountaintop and there on the mountaintop uh, Peter, James, and John, as well as Jesus, they see that Jesus is transformed. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, is, they s- said, his garments were as that, that no bleach could make it as white as he was. And It was God's glory showing on him. And so up there they, they, they see and God comes down and, he, and he, God overshadows them with a cloud and his voice comes out of the cloud and says, hey, this is my beloved son. I want you to listen to him. I want you to listen to him. And so they have this mountaintop experience. Peter, James, and John Peter says, I want to make a memorial. Like this is so significant that I want to make a memorial in this. And so we know it's a, it's a big time event. But it's not that that's, that's amazing. It's as they come down from the mountaintop, Jesus along with Peter, James, and John. And they, they come up to a, a, a group of uh, a people, and the group of people seem disconcerted. They seem, uh, they seem a little frustrated because something's happening at the base of the mountain that they can't quite figure out. And so Jesus, is going, Jesus basically comes along and says, what's happening here? What's going on? And this this man comes up and he says, listen, that my son has an unclean spirit that causes him to seize and and Satan wants to throw him in the fire and when we're near water, he wants to drown him. And so Jesus makes a statement of like, uh, out, of, out of righteous indignation, he says, oh, faithful generation. He's talking about the apostles here. He's like, how long am I to be with you? How long do I have to deal with this? Like he's frustrated with the apostles. The apostles could not... Could not uh, cast out this demon that was that was overtaking the boy, right? And it was a significant event in that in that moment because Jesus comes in and he casts he casts the demon out of the boy. And then as you as you move on in the scriptures in Mark chapter nine, you get to a place and you're just kind of wondering what are the apostles thinking. What are the apostles thinking? they just they, Peter James and John had seen the the glory of God shine through Jesus Christ. this is my son, follow him right? And then they get down that the the apostles can't figure out how to cast out this demon and then not just a few verses later, as they come into Capernaum and as Jesus was in the house, he asked the apostles What were you discussing as you were coming from Galilee? As we were moving from Galilee, as we were just going through this experience, what were you guys discussing along the road as we come into Capernaum? But they kept silent. That's what the Bible says. They didn't want to tell Jesus what they had been discussing. Do you want to know why they had not wanted to tell Jesus why they went and discussed him because they had argued with one another about who was the greatest who was the greatest they were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest this this same few that couldn't even cast a demon out of a boy who was being seized and uh, satan wanted to drown and to cast into the fire but they were arguing over who was the greatest and so Jesus just gives this very simple illustration. He tells him to sit down and he, he brings a ch- child over to him. And he says, anyone who has childlike faith. See, these are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We see Jesus exude this fact in, that humbleness and humility is what, is what we want to see. Is what is seen in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is the perfection of that. So you, maybe, like the apostles, may ask, who is the greatest? And I think, as we will see today, that Stephen lays out a pretty phenomenal sermon for us that points to who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? Jesus says that that he did not come to be... Served, but he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom from for many. And that should be an example to us as we see today in Acts chapter six. So let's read and then we will walk through this fairly long passage. Last week was seven verses, today it's two chapters. So we'll figure it out. We'll get through it. We will see. That's titled today's sermon. As probably is seen on the screen, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. If you have any doubts about that, I'm telling you Jesus is greater. Chapter, eight, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen as it was called, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of um, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came up upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They set up witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran." And after, this, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a position, to his offspring after him, though he has no child. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in, the, in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. He gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions, gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there uh, arose over Egypt another king, who did not know Joseph. But he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive at this time. Kept alive at this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. And he brought up three months uh, uh, in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, brought him up as 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 her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians." He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are my brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing, wronging his neighbor, thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, "'Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him.'" And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were worshiping and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring uh, to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star uh, of your God, Rephan. The images uh, that you made to worship it, I will send you to exi- into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with, the, with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was into the days of David. Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people and circumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We heard these things. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Man, that's a lot to take in, right? Like as John said, this is the Old Testament like condensed down into, into one uh, half, three-quarter chapter, right? And so we've got to try to figure this out and work through it. And so uh, I just have five simple points. Five simple points. My first point is this. Prayer matters. Prayer matters. Look at verse 8. Very simply, verse 8. That's the, my reference point for prayer matters. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, We're introduced to Stephen here in Acts chapter 6 when he is made uh, one who would serve uh, tables. He would serve and hand out uh, the right monetary means to the widows. And so this was a a big deal. They chose seven that would come from them and Stephen uh, was one that they referenced as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the early parts of chapter 6 in verse 5. But what he is doing here in grace and power and doing great wonders and signs is something significant when you just turn back a couple chapters to Acts chapter 4. I want, to, I want to point you to something that happens of why Stephen is able to do this he's able to do this because he's full of the Holy Spirit that is working through him but notice what happens as Peter and John they're, they're standing before the council in Acts chapter four and they've been arrested for proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the resurrection that he's the, the way the truth and the life this is what this is what they have been preaching and so they are they are uh, detained they're arrested and then they they went and they're, they're called uh, like ordinary Uneducated men, but God is doing something in them. And so, listen. So, so he said, "Listen, we want you to stop speaking about Jesus." That's what the council demands from Peter and John. I want you to stop talking about Jesus. And then something significant happens in Acts four twenty. Says Peter and John both say, "We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't stop. No matter what you do to us." We cannot stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We cannot stop talking about His death, burial, and resurre- resurrection, and its significance not only on our lives but its significance on your life. And that's what they're saying here. And so the believers they they go back and they and, and they go back and they are released to go back and they when they go back they start to pray. They, they go back with the church and they begin to pray. And we see in Acts chapter four, verse uh, I think it starts in verse twenty. 24, they go back to the church and when the church heard it, they began to pray. They lifted their voices together to God. They started to pray together. They said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they, they gather together and they they. Ask the Lord, Lord, you are sovereign over these things. These things you, you sovereignly put into place. Now help us to consp- continue to speak your word with all boldness. But here's what's significant in verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So it's, it's nothing extraordinary that Stephen is doing the very thing that the early church here in Acts chapter 4 is praying for. Specifically, Lord, would you not only grant us boldness, but Lord, would you also stretch out your hand to heal, to do signs, to do wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And you turn to Acts chapter 6, and Stephen is doing that very Thing. like this is nothing new for the early church all throughout the early church we see them devoted to prayer the very first thing that they do after Jesus ascends into heaven and as they gather together this 120 people Acts chapter 1 tells us they go and they gather together and what is the first thing that they do they devote themselves to pray they begin to pray They devoted, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Like if there's anything that we can learn from the book of Acts, is that that they, uh, the apostles and the early church, were devoted to prayer. it, It is as if they knew that they could accomplish nothing in and of themselves. And they were right. They were right. And so we should be, we should learn from the book of Acts that we should devote ourselves to prayer as a church. As to brothers and sisters of Christ, we should devote ourselves to praying together. We have to realize that we can accomplish nothing in and of ourselves apart from the Holy Spirit working in us. Allowing us, as it did Stephen, to do signs and wonders among the people. Now our signs and wonders may differ from their signs and wonders, but it's still extraordinary what God can do in and through a praying people devoted to praying together. There's something extraordinary that happens in the book of Mark that I was talking about earlier. In chapter 9. The apostles, they, they, they came out as they were... They, they didn't understand why they couldn't cast out this demon. God had... Jesus had given them authority to do so. He had sent them out to be able to, 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 be able to um, cast out demons, to perform signs and miracles and wonders. And one of them was to be able to cast out demons. But I want you to notice that something's forgotten with the apostles here. In Mark 9, verse 28, you don't have to turn there, just listen. When he had entered the house... This is Jesus. His disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast out this demon? How come we couldn't cast out this demon? One simple thing that happened. This kind, Jesus saying, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Even the apostles had forgotten the most simple thing that Jesus had shown them. And that was to pray to the Father. That prayer changes things. Prayer, when aligned with God's will, changes circumstances. And it aids in our Christ-like desires. Right? Stephen's Christ-like desire is that he could proclaim the word of truth. That that God would allow him, by being full of the the power and the Holy Spirit, would be able to do great signs and wonders. Not only that, it aligned with the churches, what what they were praying together, as they were devoted to one another. That God would do this through their prayer. So church, may we be a church that understands that prayer matters. Prayer matters. It changes things. It attunes us, attunes us with who God is and what He wants in our own lives. Prayer matters and it mattered for the early church. Point number two is this. True godliness promotes opposition and slander. True godliness actually brings about opposition and slander. Look at this in chapter in verse 9. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. something amazing happened. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They They could not push back on what he was talking about. So what do they do? They're not going to accept what he's saying and they'll just secretly instigate men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. So true godliness promotes opposition and slander. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. The gospel is foolishness to those who cannot hear, do, refuse to hear, to remain those who remain stiff-necked, And if you're pursuing true godliness, if people see you pursuing true godliness, if people see you proclaiming the word of God, if people see you reading your Bible, if people understand that you're praying for them who are worldly, who don't want to listen to the gospel, but see you striving after good character and reputation, they will have desire to slander you. There will be opposition. There will be those who will call you a fake. There will be those who call you out for believing something that, is, that seems relatively uh, foreign to their imagination. There will be friends and neighbors and even loved ones who may turn their back on you. Who slander you. Who talk ill of you. Sorry. What I get from moving around a lot on stage, right? All right. Sorry. There will be those who turn their back on you. Because the more Christ like that we endeavor to become, the more we should expect hostility and persecution the way Jesus did. The more like Jesus that we become, the more persecution, the more affliction, the more people will bring about hostility towards us. Because the world only likes godliness and virtue when it doesn't intercede on their own moral beliefs. But when you start interceding on my own moral beliefs and you start telling me that I have to stop doing something in order to believe something else, then you're taking it too far. So opposition will come. Opposition will come. Just as it came to Stephen here. Slander will happen. But here's what we must do. We must proclaim the good news anyway. We must pursue true godliness anyway. We must strive after good character and good reputation as as these uh, seven, when it talks about them in the first part of Acts chapter 6. And we must be patient and loving to those who oppose us. We must pray for them. Prayer matters, remember? We have to be willing through confrontation. We have to be willing through opposition. We have to be willing through slander to remain patient in our prayers for other people as we seek godliness. My third point is this. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. If you want to know, if you want a summation of Acts chapter 7, 1 through 50. I'll just give you the 1 through 50, right? If you want a summation of Acts chapter 7, 1 through 50, it's this. Jesus is greater. That's what Stephen is saying. He's saying that Jesus is greater. He lays out for us a summation of the old testament as we've talked about he talks about abraham and so uh we see in john chapter 8 jesus was talking to the jews about their lineage and they asked him are you greater than our father abraham that was the question to jesus And Jesus' answer was, it shocked them, the Bible says. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. That is is Jesus saying that I am God. I am Lord over Abraham. And then we see that as Jesus conversed in John chapter 4 with a woman by Jacob's well in Samaria, he told her that he could give her living water. So thinking that he was referring to some other type of well water, she asked, are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus replied by contrasting the temporal gift of Jacob with the eternal life of his own, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That He was greater than this water that was coming out of Jacob's well. He was the, he was the water that would give eternal life. And then the other example, another example that we get from this sermon of, of, of Stephen, which is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, by the way, is that, is that, uh, is that of Moses. We know Moses as a lawgiver. He was the emancipator of Israel and a worker of miracles. We know that Moses had the unique privilege of speaking to God face to face as as one speaks to a friend, Exodus tells us. And before he died, Moses commanded the Israelites to watch for the coming of another prophet who would bear some resemblance to Moses. But you must listen to him, Deuteronomy 18 says. Jesus was the fulfillment of that law, we find out in Matthew 5, 17. We find out that Jesus, he does rescue us from the sin of death. From sin and death, as we see in Romans 8, 2. That Jesus was a worker of miracles. And as Hebrew 3 says that we've read already, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. What about David? In Jesus' day, a common title for the Messiah was a son of David. The Jews' use use of this term signified their belief based on prophecy that the Messiah would be of David's lineage, as we see in 2 Samuel 7.16. In a dialogue in the temple, Jesus quotes Psalm 110 as he points to David, calls the Messiah, My Lord. So the son of David, therefore, is greater than David and has a lineage greater than an earthly line of royalty. Then there was Solomon, who was unrivaled in wisdom. He was unrivaled in wealth and power and prestige. Monarchs from around the world visited Jerusalem during Solomon's reign and paid paid him homage. Yet Jesus says in Matthew 12 that someone greater than Solomon is here okay so you've, you've got you've, Stephen has shown us that he's greater than all these heroes of the faith as we see in Hebrews chapter 11 these, these one that these Jews hold fast to that Jesus is greater than those but what about the temple? I mean, the temple was the central thing where we would go and we could, we could go in there and, and our sins would be taken care of. We would have intercession in the temple. See, the temple in Jerusalem was a glorious place. It's full of history and meaning and religious consequence. Yet Jesus told the Pharisees this I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. The temple was where the nation's priests interceded with God and Jesus' ministry of intercession is far greater than that. Hebrews 8, 6 tells us. So you want to know what the point of Stephen's sermon was? This long sermon? He said Jesus is greater. He's greater than Moses greater than Jacob and Abraham and David and Solomon who built the temple. He's greater than even your temple that was built by hands. That was the point of what Stephen was addressing here. Why? Look at verse 6. Get back to verse 6 with me in 13. So they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. What is this holy place? What's he referring to here? The temple. And what? The law. What was it that they held on to the Titus, Jews? right? What did Jews hold on to? Listen. For we have heard him say, verse 14, That this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, right? The temple will be destroyed. And will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That was their greatest fear. That we would lose our place of intercession and that our customs would have to change. Is that not the same fears that those in the world, when they hear the good news of the gospel, like it, it feels good to them, right? But then when we tell them that, hey, there's a turning that has to happen, there is something called repentance where you have to turn away from your sin and then you walk in a new direction. Wait a minute, that, that can't happen. I enjoy the world too much. I enjoy my life too much. I can't change in that way. My customs are too great. These, these sacred cows that, I've, that, I've, that, I, that I love, I can't get rid of. And that's what Stephen was fighting against. These things that you've made sacred, you need to hold to loosely because Jesus is greater. The reputation that you're worried about having amongst your friends and your family and your co-workers and all those things, you need to put aside because Jesus is greater. He's greater than all the earthly good that you can ever imagine. He is greater. So what Stephen is doing here is, is really amazing. Because he's, he's taking the, these Jews, these people that are opposed to him, he's taking them back to the beginning, to Genesis. And he's walking them through the timeline of the Old Testament, and he's trying to expose them for where they are and what they understand. And he's exposing that Jesus is greater than all these things, yet they don't get it. And so what he's what he's doing is what we try to do every Sunday here. You see, he's, he's given a really good biblical theology. That's what Stephen's doing is he's walking through. And he's... he's teaching he's given he's given a biblical theology for what the old testament is supposed to accomplish so biblical theology provides a framework for understanding the whole of bible biblical theology helps to guide our reading it helps to guide our study and so you maybe you ask like i don't understand biblical theology how how does it do that so here's what biblical theology is in a nutshell. It is, it's an approach to reading um, all of the Bible with its main focus being Jesus. So reading all of the Bible and its main focus, no matter if you're at, in Genesis through Revelation, is that everything in there points to Jesus. So, biblical theology is a scriptural roadmap that leads us to Jesus. It's why our last book that we preached was the book of Exodus. It's why, and thankfully so, that no matter who was preaching here on Sunday morning during the book of Exodus, you still received a pretty Christ centric sermon, right? Because everything in Exodus, amazingly so, points to what is to come points to the fact that Jesus is greater than all these things. And the fulfillment of all these things. And that's what Stephen was laying out for us here. So we're all about here. We're all about recommending good books. We're all about recommending good books here. So I have a good book recommendation for you. This is called Biblical Theology. Right? It is a small book. I like small books. I like easy to read books. It even has big words. Right? I like that. Because that means I can read it in a day or so. Right? You can read through it pretty quickly. This is this is a book called Biblical Theology. It is a great introduction to what biblical theology is. It's a great introduction for you in how to read the scriptures. And so just if you if you would pick that up or If you would like for us to pick that up for you, let me know and um, I'll put Brian O'Day on it. He he enjoys buying those books for y'all. All (laughs) All right. Just kidding. All right. So, Jesus is greater. That's the point of Steve's sermon. He is getting back to the customs that that they're so worried about changing, the temple that seems like the centerpiece of all. Jesus is greater greater. He is greater than your temples and he is greater than all your heroes of the faith. Point number four. This kind of goes along with the opposition point that I made in point number two. But point number four. Christians must proclaim this truth, the good news of the gospel despite resistance Rejection and possible martyrdom. Christians must proclaim this truth that Jesus is greater. Despite resistance, rejection and possible martyrdom or death. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You see, Jews understood. One thing they understood was circumcision. right? They knew this was a sign of the covenant. But Jesus said that in order for you to understand the good news of the gospel, you need a circumcision of the heart. That means that you need to, to cut out all that crap that's in there that's not good and replace it with what is, which is Jesus Christ. You need to, to, to root out sin In your life. And replace it with things that are holy. So you need a circumcision of the heart. You need a change of heart. A change of direction where you pursue sin. Or you don't pursue sin. And you pursue godliness. That is a change of heart. And so he says you stiff necked people. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did so to you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. See, all the prophets, even Stephen understood, that all the prophets pointed to the one who would come, and he would be the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels but did not keep it. See, you couldn't live up to the law. That's why Jesus is greater because Jesus is grace and mercy. You can never live up to the law. You can never live up to the perfection that the law requires. But yet the prophets pointed to one. One who would absorb the wrath and the vengeance of God on our behalf for our sin, that would be Jesus, who is the righteous one. That he would absorb the penalty of our sin for all those who would believe. And now when they heard these things, you'd expect it to be like it was with Peter, right? Peter preaches a couple sermons. Thousands come to know him. They repent and sat cloth and say, What must we do? It doesn't happen here with Stephen. So when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth. Can you get this picture of like, they're grinding their teeth at him. Like they were so mad and frustrated. But Stephen gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. Listen, I want you to hear me in this. There are going to be times when you share the gospel and you share it so eloquently and so well that you're like, man, there's no doubt that this person's coming to the Lord, right? You just, you just kind of have that eloquence. And you feel like God is going to move and He's going to do something amazing. And, they, they, and the person in front of you cries out or He stopped their ears. We don't know. We have no clue who's going to receive the gospel. The only thing that we... to be found faithful in is proclaiming that jesus is greater proclaiming that the good news of jesus christ is better than anything this world can offer we will come up against resistance we will be rejected there may be a possibility depending on where you're at in proclaiming the good news that you may die as stephen did you may fall asleep but we must be faithful we must find ourselves faithful as Stephen was faithful. There will be some who will be stiff-ne- stiff-necked. There will be some, like as we'll see in Acts chapter 17, like the Bereans who say, Hey, I just—I I- want to figure this out. Help me to examine the Scriptures. Help me to understand it better. And we reason with them as Paul reasoned with the Bereans. There will be some who will contemplate the idea and say, Hey, look, I'll think about this. And they go on their way and they never think about it again. But then there will be some, as we see continued on in Acts chapter 8 and 9, where some, like Saul, as they're they're laying their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of his execution, or Saul, as we see here, the Lord is going to transform him in an amazing way. So we must proclaim the truth that Jesus is greater. The gospel that is the good news of Christ despite resistance, despite hard-heartedness, despite those who would reject it because there are some that God has who will receive it. Man, it's a beautiful time when someone receives the good news and they transform their lives and change happens Be faithful in it. Be consistent in it. Don't give up on those who have rejected you and resisted you. And then uh, my last point is this. The promises of Jesus will be fulfilled. The promises of Jesus will be fulfilled. Saul approved of his execution in chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Why is this significant? Because Jesus in Acts 1 told us that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to to Judea, to Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. And that through this event... That's exactly what happened. It's that through this event that the believers were scattered, Saul is going to be ravage, uh, ravaging the church. and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This was in fulfillment of what Jesus proclaimed would happen, and that from Judea and Samaria and from Jerusalem, that it would go to the other ends of the earth. That's why we're sitting in a church today in Jacksonville, North Carolina is because this promise has been fulfilled. And this promise has been fulfilled by faithful Christians who have not shirked back from their responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That He is greater than anything else. That He is greater than any of our sin. That if you would repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ... That you too, He is surely to save you. That the Holy Spirit will come upon you, that it will transform who you are and make you new in Him. That is what's happened to all believers in all time. You heard the good news proclamated in some way, shape, or form when you believed. So I pray that we would be faithful in proclaiming that Jesus is greater. And that we would not lie in fear of those who would persecute us. Those who would oppose us. Those who would resist our desires to see them come to Christ. Those who would reject us and who we are. Those who may even laugh and mock at us. By God's grace, He would find us faithful. Let's pray for that now. Jesus, I ask Lord for your forgiveness in my own life for times where i have wondered what others would think where i have been concerned with mockery where i've been concerned with rejection and opposition and Lord even even in my fear of not knowing what to say forgive me Lord, help me to be a person of prayer. Knowing that prayer matters in and of these circumstances. That you allow godliness to be exemplified in ways that others may see it. But Lord, it would not cause them to reject or resist. But Lord, I pray that uh, through our godliness, Lord, it would help others to see that there is something greater than this world has to offer. That Jesus is greater. That the good news of Him is greater than anything else in this world. So, Lord, help us to be proclamators of your gospel, to feel the weight and the burden of of. of proclaiming the good news of who you are. That is our responsibility, Lord, that we are, how beautiful it is of us uh, that we would bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are perishing. So help us in our weaknesses, Lord, that your spirit would fill us and help us. Give us the desires of your heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.